And our scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew chapter 17. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax in yours. Now, the interesting thing about that, as I was uh, preparing for the message this week, is I realized that's not even the Roman tax that they're paying, right? This is the temple tax, which was actually uh, way back in Exodus chapter 30. I had to look this up because I didn't really know entirely what it was talking about. There's this uh, payment of a half shekel that's kind of instituted as part of the law as a way to kind of take care of the goings-on in the tabernacle uh, and later for the temple, and it's even kept at the same cost by the time of Jesus. The two drachma is equivalent to the half shekel. I think that just makes Jesus' statement that much more interesting. Because he is not kind of disputing some sort of like weird, oppressive tax given by uh, the Romans against them. Uh, he's not trying to flaunt that. And Peter even indicates that Jesus has, he has no reason to believe that Jesus wouldn't want to pay it. It's in the law. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. But then Jesus comes and he, he says this thing to Peter privately. The kids, they expected to pay taxes to their parents. The kings uh, ask their children to pay taxes? Peter says, no. So Jesus says, yes, the children are exempt. Right? And then he finds this weird, miraculous way to pay the tax anyway, not to cause offense. Now, in what follows, Jesus is going to begin to work out what this means. We might think this has all sorts of interesting implications for so what is our ought to do, our duty, in order to take care of uh, the, the spaces where we meet for worship and all of this, but instead he takes it a different direction. Now, we, week four into a series looking at the teaching sex in, sections in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. So far, we've heard the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's called to this radically faithful life built upon the foundation of Christ and his kingdom. Uh, going on from there, Jesus equips the 12, uh, 12 of his closest followers, to do the same sort of ministry that he does. We looked at the instructions that he gave to them as he sends them out for ministry. And as he begins to get pushback and rejection from religious leaders, we saw last week he tells several parables um, to start talking about what the kingdom of God is like in ways that are both familiar, images that are familiar to people, but also a little bit confounding. Um, the message that God's kingdom is already and available to all, but only few will receive it. After that, Jesus' miracles, they start to get more and more impressive, while the religious leaders just get more and more stubborn and hard-hearted. So Jesus miraculously feeds thousands. He walks on water. He continues to cast out demons. Meanwhile, some of the leaders are complaining that he and his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Uh, and or say grace before the meal in the right way, things like that. Um, that's when something interesting starts to happen with Jesus, his disciples. He begins taking them aside and telling them these elders are going to plot to kill him, and they're going to succeed. 
three days after that, though, that he's going to rise again from the dead. And not surprisingly, the disciples have kind of a hard time understanding exactly what he's meaning. He's been talking in parables, after all. Maybe he's giving a parable. Uh, but they don't entirely know what he's meaning when he's giving them plain language. None of them understand what he's talking about. And instead, all that they can seem to think about is their own status as they follow Jesus. Who's going to be the greatest, the most impressive um, as they follow Jesus? So that gets us into what we're talking about this morning in Matthew chapter 18. If you want to open your Bibles with me today, we are in Matthew chapter 18. And it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, by the way, I skipped over a slide too, if you wanted to see the outline of where we've been and where we're going. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And from here, Jesus gives this unique teaching to his disciples about the immense value that God places on his people and how we ought to respond to and treat one another in light of that. He says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. And he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I don't know about you, that sounds a bit mafia-ish to me, right? Like, that's, that's pretty intense. But he's giving this indication here that the greatest in the kingdom are the most vulnerable, people who are in need. And that the least in the kingdom are the kind of people who exploit the vulnerable. And Jesus reiterates a teaching right after that, though, that we've already heard in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown to eternal fire. Now, it doesn't seem like he meant that literally, uh, or we probably would have heard more about Jesus walking around with a bunch of maimed disciples, if they would have really taken that, uh, him at face value on that. But he is serious here about trying to convey just how deeply grieved God is by the destruction that sin brings upon his children. He wants us to take that idea seriously. So we see both this deep concern to protect the vulnerable, but also a sense that we have to cherish and protect our own innocence from the things in this world that would corrupt us. He goes on to say this, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. Now some people extrapolate here to say that every individual has a guardian angel watching over them. I'm not sure that we can entirely say that just from this passage. But what we can say is that God deeply cares for all of his children, all of his creation. He wants to care for the vulnerable. Now, I think that's interesting, too. If you go back here real quick as well, when he talks about becoming like little children. Let's see. In verse 4, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When you think about becoming like children, maybe the image that we often uh, call to mind is this idea of having childlike faith or the innocence of a child, right? The purity of a child. I think it's so intriguing that that's not the thing that he points out here. 
humility, the humbleness of a child, the idea of being vulnerable, being dependent in, in need of God here. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Again, telling a parable, he uses common imagery, but also in such a way that it's like, What's going on here? You might think it's a bit risky that this shepherd leaves nine sheep unattended just to find the one. But he seems to trust that they are okay. This is how deeply God cares for those who are lost and hurting and in danger. Jesus directly applies this parable right afterwards to how we can help others who have strayed. You maybe have heard this uh, passage before. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So, in essence, talk to them about it. Uh, I heard someone use the, the phrase of um, having this value to uh, say the quiet parts out loud. Not to leave things hidden and underneath, but if there's something that is really uh, important and that uh, is, is drawing a wedge in the relationship or hurting others or, uh, or hurting that person themselves, let's talk about it. Bring it to the surface. Confront them about it so that you can possibly save that person and the relationship that you have with them. It goes on, if they won't listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Grab a friend, right? See if they can help sort it out. It may be that they see something that you don't. Maybe you thought there was an issue that there really wasn't. Uh, or they can help mediate if there's some misunderstanding. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If it's determined that this person really is in sin and is stubbornly refusing to change their ways, let the church leaders know. Now, this is why what we did this morning even is important. We talk about membership and renewal of that, that we have some shared understanding of faith here. Because the assumption here is that this individual has already previously agreed to a shared understanding of right and wrong behavior, that they would care what the church leaders have to say, right? And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Just for reference, how did Jesus typically treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, right? He, he typically treated them with love, with compassion. He was constantly hanging out with people who everyone else deemed as, as sinners. And so it, when he's saying this, he's not saying to spurn people and judge them. He's simply saying that you should stop treating them as if you sh they share your under same understanding of what's right and wrong. Instead, start treating them in a different way in which you're witnessing compassionately uh, to truth and, and trying to help them understand what this kingdom of God is like. Why would you confront someone who doesn't even agree that what they're doing is wrong? On what basis, right? You can't hold someone accountable to something that they don't agree with. But the goal of all of this that Jesus is teaching, this idea of reconciliation, of restoration into community. Jesus longs for no one to be lost because of petty disagreements or an inability to overcome sin. Just like the shepherd goes after the, the one sheep, he longs that we would have the same sort of love and care for all of God's children. So he gives us the responsibility to safeguard each other in wisdom and in grace and in forgiveness 
Jesus goes on to make a pretty startling claim. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am. Now, Peter seems to pick up on all of this conversation that Jesus may in all of this be asking them to ultimately forgive people who have wronged them. And so picking up on all that, Peter came to Jesus and he asked, well, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and my sister who, who sins against me? Up to seven times? Seems like a pretty holy number, right? Seven occurs a whole lot in the Bible. You think of the days of creation. As a frame of reference here, basic teaching at that time suggested that three times was enough to show a forgiving spirit. And that if a person kept doing the same thing after three times, maybe they weren't all that repentant of the thing that they are uh, trying to come to you asking for forgiveness for. Uh, so Peter is actually already being pretty generous in his offer of seven, uh, more than what is standard belief at the time. But Jesus answered you, I tell you not seven, but 77. Now there's an interesting thing here, right? Uh, he gives the number 77, sometimes referenced as uh, 70 times seven. This is actually the same wording that's used in Genesis 4, 24 by a guy named Lamech. Does anybody remember this story? He's a descendant of Adam's son, Cain. Um, so Cain had murdered, murdered his brother Abel, who was cur- and then cursed to wander the earth. Uh, he whined about this punishment, and he worried that he'd be killed by someone who found him out later. But God marks him with a special protection and said that anyone who hurt him would suffer vengeance seven times over. This is Genesis 4.15. There's a, a descendant that comes a little while after Cain, who apparently knows about all of this. It's in their family history. And he makes this boast in song. He's way more violent even than Cain was. And he goes on to claim that if anyone hurts him, God will avenge him 77 times over, or 70 times 7. He uses the, in the Septuagint Greek, it's the same wording that Jesus uses here. Interesting connection, right? So it seems like Jesus here is turning around uh, Lamech's boastful exaggeration now into a statement of grace. In both situations, the number doesn't really matter, right? Exaggeration, it's this absurdly big number. The point is that you shouldn't be keeping count. As Jesus uses this, we have all been forgiven much more than we deserve. So we ought to turn that grace outwards to others to offer it to them the same way. Jesus drives that lesson home telling a parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him and begged for mercy. Be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Then it says, the servant immediately left and shook down a friend who only owed him like a hundred coins. Um, that fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. The same thing the first servant said to his master. But this man didn't listen. He threw the other one into prison, and the other servants were so outraged about it that they went and they go tell the master what had happened. 
So the master called the servant back in and said, what are you doing? You begged me, and I canceled your debt. Can't you show the same mercy to your fellow servant? So Jesus says in anger, uh, this master hands him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is the really uncomfortable part of Jesus' parable, as if the other parts weren't uncomfortable already. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister. All of this, remember, is in the context of our value in the kingdom. Who does God value? Who is the greatest? Who is the least? For Jesus, your value has nothing to do with your performance, with your status, with your contributions. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the first or last, the least or the greatest, he said elsewhere about his cousin, uh, John the Baptist, that he was one of the greatest prophets of the time, that he was the greatest to ever live. But he says that even still a child is greater in the kingdom than John. Because it doesn't matter what you accomplish. It matters that you depend on Jesus, that you recognize the weight of all he has done for us. You turn that same value outwards to careful about what he can we're dependent on him like a child depends on a parent. Like a lost sheep depends on a shepherd. Like a bankrupt servant depends on the mercy of his boss. We have been shown great mercy. Will we treasure it? Pay it forward to others. Or will we go on pretending that we can do it on our own and wound others? Up to us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have shown us love and great value. You have called us your children. That you have gone to great lengths to show us your love. As if it wasn't enough just you to have spoken and to made all, have made all things. That you have continually been in covenantal relationship with. You have been involved in your creation, uh, reconciling, making covenants with, showing grace and mercy towards. That you have been faithful even when we are not. That you keep seeking and finding the lost, just as that shepherd in your parable. Find the one who is lost. Jesus, that you would come in the flesh. You would be here and close to us experience all that we have experienced, to live a perfect life, to teach us, to guide us, to demonstrate your power and your care, to lead. And ultimately, even when we respond to you with, with hate and vitriol and turn all of our anxiety and uncertainty and fear outward and, and violence, you would receive us with love and mercy and forgiveness. They forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And that you would overcome the grave. You would overcome all the powers of sin and death and evil and darkness. And that you would declare victory. Reconciliation. 
give us an opportunity to be reconciled. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way. We pray, Lord, that we might recognize the value of the gift that you have given. Show that same grace and mercy to others. We might be found in you. Amen.